Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is June 10, 2020, and I'm speaking with Mary Augusta Brazelton, who is University Lecturer in Global Studies of Science, Technology, and Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Mary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You work on the history of science, technology, and medicine in China, and your first book was about mass immunization in China in the 20th century. We usually see China as a recently and rapidly modernizing country. Is that view accurate for public health in China? Yes, and I think that it's important in considering a question like this to really zero in on the word modernizing. As a historian, it's really easy to be captivated by questions of what exactly constitutes modernization in China. Do we measure modernity by, in this case, perhaps the importation of what's often called Western biomedicine? Certainly, that's how historians broadly have often treated questions of the history of public health. I think there's also room for slightly more expansive definitions of what it might mean to talk about modernity in different contexts. So if you keep the frame in the history of medicine, but think about, for example, quarantine as a public health intervention, as a means of controlling the spread of disease, that's itself quite an old uh, procedure, and yet it's still a vital part of what we consider modern public health infrastructure, indeed, even to the present day. And that's something that we see uh, quite often used in a late imperial Chinese context, for example. That said, in terms of what we tend to think of as modern public health, in terms of, for instance, practices of vaccination against infectious disease, responsive clinical care programs, infrastructure like sewers or latrines, public promotion of hygienic practices like street sweeping or boiling one's drinking water, then scholarship does suggest that these are ideas that we see really emerging and taking shape in mid-19th century China and early 20th century China, especially via treaty ports, uh, cities that were subject to a variety of colonial influences. This is something that uh, Ruth Rogowski has shown in her landmark work, Hygienic Modernity. Um, and so if we look at 20th century China more broadly, we see a growing capacity on the part of the various states that held power there to administer public health as it was constituted in these practices. Are there specific legacies from the history of medicine and public health in China that might be shaping the response to the current epidemic? Yes, I think we can see specific historical legacies that figure in really interesting ways in the contemporary situation. And I think there are probably three examples of this going back further and further in time that might be interesting to talk about. So most recently, China's experience with SARS with the virus SARS-CoV-1, as it's sometimes called, in 2003, really coincided with the reformation of public health in China. So not only was the SARS outbreak an important moment insofar as it set certain precedents for responses to a novel coronavirus like this, it also happened to take place just as processes of public health reform were getting underway to respond to trends of the 1990s and early 2000s. So, for example, this was a moment when a very old structure of epidemic prevention stations was being taken and adapted to produce new centers for disease control. Epidemiology itself, as Catherine Mason has shown, was being reformulated as a profession. Often, and especially after SARS broke out, 
with the intention of preventing a similar outbreak from happening in the future. So we can see the legacy of that recent history, both in the structures through which current responses are operating and in the kind of broader approach, which prioritizes swift and dramatic responses, often in a way that takes as its audience the broader community of global health, in some ways, in some cases, more than perhaps local domestic audiences. Um, And that's a tension that's really interesting to think about. So that's one example. Going a bit further back in time, it's interesting to think about the early People's Republic of China and its experiences building capacities to surveil as well as administrate states of public health. As you said, I've worked on the history of mass immunization programs, one of the key periods for the expansion of vaccination programs against a variety of diseases was in the early 1950s, in the first decade of the Chinese Communist Party's rule. And looking at work like that, at the patriotic hygiene campaigns that sponsored some immunization programs, for instance, suggests that the emerging People's Republic placed great emphasis on technologies of surveillance, of record keeping, and understanding how many people in places were getting vaccines, how often, and trying as much as possible to either convince or more strongly compel people to get a vaccine against smallpox or typhoid or cholera. And so we see this uh, strong emphasis being placed in, for example, manuals to vaccinators on taking records and keeping good records. And this is something that is borne out in later decades. And Fang Xiaoping's uh, recent work on responses to the Eltor cholera pandemic in the early 1960s in China illustrates the way in which there is a consistent concern with building up information um, and technologies of surveillance as part of a symbiotic process with public health administration. And certainly if we think about the variety of technologies of surveillance that we see being put into place today in China to aid in processes of contact tracing and identifying potential risks of new outbreaks, that's a really interesting legacy to see. And then third and finally, more broadly thinking about large-scale state campaigns and strategies to control epidemic diseases, if, as I mentioned earlier, we think about the history of public health and hygiene and different ways in which ideas about state control of disease emerged in treaty ports from the 19th century on through the 20th century as the result of extremely complex interactions involving translations through multiple languages in many cases, then I think one of the interesting things to see when we look at the 20th century is increasing effort on the part of the state, and there were several different states, again, in charge during this period, increasing efforts to provide health care to the people. And this gets articulated in different ways over time. So, for example, before Chinese Communist Party rule uh, was established, when a different political group, the Nationalist Party, ruled over the Republic of China, between uh, 1927 and 1949, we see debates over state medicine, means of providing large-scale national systems to provide medical care for free or reduced rates to citizens. We see this effort to provide healthcare to the people being established and articulated during the Second Sino-Japanese War, so the East Asian theater of the Second World War, That is a period when, as Nicole Barnes and Wayne Soon have shown, we see a variety of different efforts to establish new military medicine projects, new efforts to involve 
women as well as men, practitioners of traditional Chinese medicine, as well as those trained in what we would think of as Western biomedicine, efforts to enroll new groups of people in the provision of healthcare to as many people as possible, uh, and immunization programs uh, as well. So when we look at the history of the People's Republic of China, the current state, what we see is a party building on these previous uh, precedents and presenting itself as a benevolent force that's offering medicine to the people in a way that perhaps resonates with earlier efforts to think about offering national healthcare systems. So when we think about the successes that are commonly attributed to China's People's Republic, the control of infectious diseases, for example, that's something that international health experts praise China's government for having done. And that's something that actually represents quite a cumulative effort of national health care planning and systems. Should we see China's public health policies in the recent past and now as fairly uniform and centrally directed, or are there local variations and issues and disputes? There is absolutely local variation and conflict, despite this kind of effort to report national uniformity. And in the present, you know, we've seen this in the early days of the pandemic. The narrative that emerged quite quickly was one in which during December and early January, what was later characterized as local mismanagement in Wuhan uh, allowed the epidemic to spread until the national state moved in in January with very swift and extreme measures. Hence the quarantines, building hospitals in the course of a week, mass mobilization of medical workers to provide extra support and services. That's the kind of narrative that we, I think, have heard quite a lot of. And yet, I think there are also really interesting cases in which individual municipalities quite proactively responded to news of the epidemic by effectively imposing their own quarantines quite quickly, in some cases building barricades, uh, I've read reports, uh, to prevent outsiders from coming in. There's variation in how different provinces might have responded. It's worth noting, you know, I had mentioned this point about how the state builds capacities for surveilling health as well as administering it. And while I think that's important to recognize, it's also important to note that there's no single government repository of all data that is collected from different efforts to use contact tracing apps and things like that. Different government agencies don't necessarily share information with each other. And so that results in a certain degree, I think, of fragmentation in terms of things like efforts at contact tracing. Local governments can't always access information as easily as we might assume. So I think it's really worth bearing in mind the multiple levels of locality from the province to the municipality, right down to the neighborhood. And in some ways, we're, at least I'm reading uh, accounts that stress the role of really quite low-level administrations, of neighborhood committees and uh, housing estate committees and administrations in which it's someone from your local community, perhaps, who is monitoring you if you're at any risk of contracting COVID-19. And so I think that system of mutual responsibility in which individuals are held accountable within quite local communities is really quite fascinating to see. 
How are China's international relations and the history of those relations affecting its response to the epidemic? So I think it's really fascinating to consider this question of international and foreign relations on the part of China and how that history has shaped the present day. And China has historically been a leader and quite a public leader in global health. If we think back to the 1960s and 1970s even, and really the 1970s as this period when the People's Republic of China really regained a working relationship with the WHO in a serious way, it's during that period that we also see important developments in global health taking inspiration from Chinese health care programs. So the primary health care movement of the 1970s, which culminated in uh, the declaration of Ata at the end of the decade, um, asserting primary health care as a major direction for global health, one of the common examples of a successful primary health care oriented system that was cited in support of this kind of approach was China's rural health program. The barefoot doctors, the um, semi-professional uh, group of medical workers who combine Chinese and Western medical techniques were often cited and presented and discussed as examples of the kind of workers who could accomplish primary healthcare objectives in a way that was desirable. So a big part of the public prominence of that program of China's rural health as a model in the late 1970s was due in part to China's promotion and extremely successful and well-designed promotion of its rural health systems. Uh, as part of active campaigns of medical diplomacy that we see occurring in the 1960s and 70s. So efforts to bring delegations from the Western world to China, demonstrating the effectiveness of public health programs and rural health programs, but also interventions in the non-aligned world, as it was then called, in many parts of Africa and Latin America, to provide medical and other forms of aid to states in these regions. That was in part an effort to compete with the Republic of China on Taiwan for recognition as the sovereign ruler of China. And yet one of the results was this increasing prominence of China's rural healthcare system. So there's quite a significant history of China playing a leading role in global health uh, on a very public stage. And that, I think, that legacy matters to understanding current concerns with presenting a public image uh, in China of having control of this disease. There's also a much more recent precedent of SARS um, in 2003, when we see a novel coronavirus emerge and become a pandemic in a way that the emerging epidemiological uh, profession in China is very keen to avert and to avoid ever happening again. So there are lots of different motivations, I think, for seeing efforts to really promote a public image of not only controlling coronavirus within its borders, but also for China to demonstrate its role in supporting the global effort to control coronavirus. And we see that with, uh, for example, the public release of images of medical supplies being shipped from China around the world to Italy and other places. And so it's really worth keeping in mind that there are lots of these different motivations. 
That said, it's also worth keeping in mind that the domestic audience for these kinds of interventions in China shouldn't be underestimated. The early response to the coronavirus situation in Wuhan resulted in its thoughts and some dissatisfaction within China with how the situation had been handled. And this is something that colleagues have written about in venues like China File and other kind of commentary sites. And so there are quite strong motivations for China's media organizations to really present quite a clear image of themselves controlling this disease for domestic as well as foreign audiences. That's very interesting. Thank you very much, Mary, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Sure. Thank you again. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Jessica Linker, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org.